You're doing a education and advocacy, and it's like political too. It all comes together, it seems. It didn't used to feel very political. It certainly wasn't partisan, that's for <laughs> sure. When we started, it, it honestly wasn't a very part. It was like one of the last remaining, because this is an incredibly divided, very partisan Congress, but this was one of the last important, really probably the only last remaining kind of important subject that hadn't yet been partisanized. You're tuned to the RCast, where we talk about the blockchain. On the RCast. And how your data remains. It's the RCast. Where our drive is the topic. Censorship resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 39 of the RCast. Today, I'm joined by Devin James, co-founder of the Web3 Working Group. And he has a very unique background, including military service in Iraq, working for the Jim Henson Company and working in Web3, educating people about it. So we talk about the potential of this world, how our drive and our weave tie into all this, and what he's working on next with raising awareness. Be sure to check out Turbo. You can now use your credit card to upload files. It's our bundler-enabled uploading service, which we're really excited about. Let's jump into it. This is my interview with Devin. Hi, friends. Welcome to the new episode of the RCast. I'm here with Devin James of the Web3 Working Group. We connected at the Disco Summit in Austin, which he did an amazing job hosting. And I wanted to pick his brain about his work, his nonprofit activism, and his life. So, Devin, welcome to the RCast. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Andrew. Nice to, uh, nice to be on. Thank you. How was that experience for you, hosting that event? Because I thought you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Honestly, it was a little bit of a surprise day of because there was two organizations that were involved in the hosting of it, like the guys that actually hosted the physical space and provided the food and everything like that. They took on an enormous workload and I was mainly just responsible for trying to get the right kind of groups there and whatnot. And we never really talked until that day about who is going to MC. And we didn't even actually talk. I just started doing it and then I just kept on doing it. So I didn't expect to do that at all. Think I'm really glad that it worked out well because it was a lot of fun to do and to get to meet all those great projects and to see all the people that were interested in that particular subsector of the space. That was really fantastic. As a host, you have to have knowledge of everyone's projects a little bit and how it all ties into the greater vision of how Web3 is making the world better. And I was just curious, like, how would you explain the mission statement of your nonprofit. So it's a 501c3 nonprofit. So it means basically our limitation is that we need to be advocating for public benefit. And we see that as a perfect fit with what exactly we're here to help with. Because we specifically, like Web3 has become a really a much more broad term than we expected it was going to be when we were getting this thing started. And we focus on a specific subset of it, infrastructure projects. Um, at that event, we were calling it Disco for uh, Distributed Compute. But some people hone compute into kind of the CPU side, literally processing things. In, in what, we, what we're really referring to is infrastructure. So the kinds of projects that do real things that it, years ago, the term going around was utility. And then unfortunately, that kind of got adopted by uh, some laws and said, as long as it's you got some utility to it, then maybe it's not going to be a security. And so everyone said, oh, we've got utility, we've got utility. And no one really understood what the actual term meant. But it's a good way to describe it. It's giving you a real thing, not just a financial service. So things like we, the way we, we, we talk about it is with the analogy of the plumbing of the web, that the infrastructure kind of protocols are trying to upgrade and standardize the plumbing of the web. Well, right now it's like plumbing before there was any standards where there could be all kinds of different sizes and there's certainly no way to have one utility connected with another kind of thing. And 
when standards were adopted and these could become public utilities and public goods, it became a lot more efficient. It became the standards really benefit everyone. And that's what we're looking at right now is there all these same services that exist on the web, like how we're hosting this video call right now or file storage or web servers, et cetera. These are things, but they're proprietary stacks. They're just, they're, they're sets of proprietary software where this movement is looking to standardize that into protocols that are open, broadly applicable, can actually serve the entire market. And by standardizing around those kind of a thing, it's a lot easier to build on top of them. And you get a lot of other benefits out of it. You get transparency, so on and so forth. You're making sure that the Web3 is working. I love that. The working group side of it came from um, the W3C. Like early on, like the, the web protocols were invented, but you really needed to have some working groups come together to try to figure out what are the standards that make sense to build upon? How do we advocate this to the public, et cetera? So it was the same kind of thing in this case. There was a handful of protocols that are in this kind of subsector that felt like they weren't really being represented by the, the public discussion, either with, you know, amongst lawmakers as they were discussing this stuff, they tended to always focus on market stuff, uh, DeFi, you know, very much financial related type services. And obviously, there's a token associated with every one of these protocols, because that's what kind of makes them sustainable, makes them able to keep on running. They aren't financial services, they're providing some sort of a infrastructure good. And so, they had an awareness of us because we'd been in this industry for 10 years. We came up with a, we had a project 10 years ago called uh, the Decentralized Library of Alexandria that eventually became called Open Index Protocol. And it was very much focused on these same concepts of, yes, there's tokens involved in these kind of things, but the ultimate point of it is to create this decentralized infrastructure for the internet so that things can be permanent, can no more censorship, you can have transparency, lower barrier of entry, more broadly applicable to everyone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we'd been talking about these things on the web and we'd actually already done a little bit of advocacy kind of teaching because the state of Wyoming stepped out in front of everyone and said, we really like this uh, technology. We want to see how it can work. And we went and spoke to to their legislature and they actually even ran a pilot program on top of some Web3 infrastructure protocols. And so between those and some of the video series that we had done trying to educate some of these things, uh, Sam had been aware of us and thought, we really need to have some sort of an advocacy organization that can speak for us kind of thing when in these meetings with Congress and with the the public in general. So everyone doesn't think this is fintech because over the course of those 10 years, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of like friends and family and just random other people about this stuff. And a whole lot of people, their eyes glass over when you're talking about financial related stuff. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to try to understand it. It's too complicated or it's too esoteric and disconnected from them. But these kind of things resonate with people. They really do understand them a lot better. Since no one was speaking on their behalf on that, they thought we need to form an organization to stand up for this subsector and represent it and help it be carved out and recognized as a specific subsector. That's when they recruited us. And I guess it was about a year ago or so that we founded the organization. You're doing a education and advocacy, and it's like political too. It all comes together, it seems. It didn't used to feel very political. It certainly wasn't partisan, that's <laughs> for sure. When we started, it, it honestly wasn't a very part. It was like one of the last remaining, because this is an incredibly divided, very partisan Congress. But this was one of the last important, really probably the only last remaining kind of important subject that hadn't yet been partisanized. But I think maybe just because of the, the collapse of FTX for whatever reason, certain members of Congress and politicians got embarrassed by their association with that. And so they decided to get 
really hardcore anti-crypto and, oh, this is really dangerous. We need to really clamp down. And it just drew the lines. And so it became very political. But we do have to be very careful because as a kind of a public benefit organization, we can't be partisan. We can't be supporting any particular uh, politicians, a can candidacy or anything like that. So we really, we have to keep it focused on just education and certainly advocacy because we have things that we think would benefit the public by being adopted. So we can teach about them. We can certainly advocate for them. It It's interesting. That honestly hasn't, it's been a lot of fun so far. All of our time on, on Capitol Hill, we, we presented to the Senate Financial Innovation Caucus, and we've spoken to a, a whole lot of staffers and a whole bunch of individuals and individual members of Congress. And it's been, they've been very receptive. It's been a really positive, rewarding experience so far. So I didn't expect it to be so political, but to the degree that it's been political, it's actually been pretty rewarding. I was thinking about the story you told me. I think it was like post-World War II, you were talking about automated regulations in England. Yeah, this is actually one of the, one of the, our favorite stories about, especially what we use to convey to members of Congress about why this is so important. Because a lot of them are treating it like, because the web, all of the companies that run the web almost exclusively exist in the United States. And that isn't by accident. It's because we have something called Section 230 that created liability protection for those companies. And the rest of the world took the opposite approach and said, they're liable for everything that their users say. And because people can say all kinds of goofy stuff that can harm other people or et cetera, uh, it was unsafe liability-wise to start any of these big companies anywhere other than the United States. And so it's, there's just been this attitude of, we own this industry, thus we get to regulate it, and there's nothing we can do that would harm it or push it out of the country. And Web3 is a different beast, and also it definitely can. And the, so the example that we always use, this is actually mid-1800s. During the development, mm. like England was basically way ahead of the rest of the world on the development of the automobile, turning the steam engine into what would become the automobile. And I, I, I haven't been able to find exactly what compelled them to do. But for some reason, all the lawmakers there decided we need to protect the, the public from this stuff. And so they passed these things called red flag laws, where it involved a handful of different things. If you enter a town, you have to slow down to two miles an hour. Someone has to get out and walk 60 yards ahead, waving a red flag, warning everyone that you're coming. And a lot of other countries considered it. And in the US, there was a state that actually considered a version where if you're going to uh, pass a horse and carriage, you had to park your car behind a bush and disassemble the car so that you don't spook <laughs> the horses. <laughs> absurdity, right? Absolute absurdity. But it completely destroyed the nascent automobile industry and all the development of it for 30 years. And then Mercedes-Benz comes along in Germany and invents the automobile and gets the, the footnote in history for having done so. And I, it's hard to not imagine that when it was just within the next 50 years, there was two different world wars where two of the major players were England and Germany, how much that impacted history when they were very mechanized wars and who knows how history could have been different had England not made such a silly mistake and not just wars aside but also industry to this day Germany still leads the automobile industry in a lot of different ways I mean they have I think the largest GDP in all of Europe certainly larger than England these things can have meaningful impacts for decades and perhaps generations especially when you're talking about a global technology that is emergent, that there's nothing you can do to stop this. It's going to happen because there's too many people that believe too deeply in it. It's too big of an upgrade to over the way things work right now. So if we completely put the brakes on it here, other countries will take the lead. And we've been saying that for the past year, and it's certainly been resonating with people. And now we're starting to see it happen. There's a handful of different laws that are being adopted throughout Europe and, and Asia. And meanwhile, we're just twiddling our thumbs and we're doing some studies and stuff like that. 
I have hope because the current uh, chairman of the House Financial Services Committee really deeply understands this stuff. He's the guy that said, I think three or four years ago, he said, Bitcoin is an unstoppable force. Those who've tried have failed. Patrick McHenry. So he deeply gets this stuff and he understands the importance of why we need it in the United States and why the current status quo isn't working. Like a lot of people push back on the idea that when we're asking for new regulation, as if to say, please govern us, we really need some governance here. That's not the case. It's more the fact that, yes, we recognize that all these things, they're built on governance and and on consensus mechanisms. So they can, in fact, protect their users. There's no fraud on these things, like at the protocol layer kind of thing. Um, but absent of new rules around these things, there's been an assumption from like the SEC and a handful of other uh, agencies that the laws that were written 100 years ago still apply. And they might as far as they're, as far as they're concerned. We tend to think they not all of them should because of what I was just saying about how a whole lot of the reason why securities laws exist is to try to protect against information asymmetry where the party that's working on the thing and the general public who is invested in it might not have the same information. It's really important to kind of balance that information, thus disclosure requirements, etc. But the vast majority of Web3 protocols and blockchain projects are developed in public. Obviously, all decisions that would impact the way that the actual protocol works, the consensus mechanisms and stuff like that need to be like changes can't just be implemented by just one party. They need to convince everyone else. That's why consensus is such a key word in this industry. So the technology itself solves for a lot of these problems. But as, but if we've got two different things trying to solve for the same problems, it creates problems, it, not just literally run up against stuff and literally stop stuff. But also it's just, it's a barrier to entry and it slows things down relative to the rest of the world. There's an arbitrage opportunity of look at all these other countries that are saying, we love this technology. We want to embrace it. We're going to actually create legal sandboxes where none of the stuff that might apply will apply for a little while. So you can do some experimenting and then we can look at it and say, Hey, this is working and no one's being hurt by it. Let's pull back on this front and let's pull back on this front and let's we'll keep on enforcing over here like the know your customer with the exchange side might be reasonable but know your customer with every single wallet no that's absolutely absurd and shouldn't even be considered it would break the working of things and it's pointless you don't need to necessarily so honestly i see that as a good thing because it could fit with that analogy i was talking about like it, it took 30 years for england to realize their mistake because germany had to take 30 years to catch up and then pat lap them it's not going to take that long to start to see the emergence of this and the really benefit to the local, to these other world economies of this technology. So as long as we have our eyes open, we can actually start to see that and maybe start to catch up and realize, hey, if we want to keep the, 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 the technology sector powerful here in the United States, then we need to actually make room for it. Your role is teaching about it. What are some things that work well with teaching about Web3 and what are things that don't work? What does work definitely is these kind of uh, analogies and historical stories and stuff like that. That one works really well. The analogy that we that I opened with talking about the, the plumbing of the web, that really works well for people. Just fit it. If it's this esoteric idea, it's hard for people to wrap their head around. If you attach it to something they're familiar with, they get it a lot faster, right? So those kind of work really well. Another one lately that's been working really well is... There's two other technologies that are very much emergent right now. Obviously, AI blowing up absolutely everywhere. And then because of Apple's introduction a month ago or so of, what do they call it? The Vision Pro, augmented reality and VR are buzzy again. I tend to think, for one thing, who knows how quickly AR and VR could be adopted and grow. If there's any company that could make it happen, it's Apple. 
who knows if they've nailed it yet. I hope so, because I'm excited. I, I love the concept of the metaverse. Snow Crash is one of my favorite novels. I'd love to see that kind of a version of the internet emerge. But we've been getting promised that it would happen for 40, 50 years, 30, 40 years now. So who really knows? But no one could deny that AI isn't blowing up and getting it's I think ChatGPT is the fastest adopted application in history. I think it was 100 million users within a month or just something absolutely absurd like that. So and there's a strong relationship between those new emergent phenomenon and Web3 for two reasons. One, I tend to believe that Web3 is necessary for them to actually work at scale and to be adopted at scale and for them to be safe. Okay, so leave the metaverse aside for a second. First, just on the AI front. For one thing, AI has a number of kind of new needs that old technologies on the web didn't really need. You need to have training data that's just enormously large, and it's important to make sure that every part of it is accurately tagged. And to some degree, you want to have someone that is able to go along and check for authenticity or check for accuracy of that data itself. If you've if you've got a whole bunch of pictures of, of apples and you've labeled them as baseballs, then a human will be able to recognize that. But if you use that as training data going into an image generator and you ask it to, to draw you a, a baseball, it's going to look like an apple, right? So you want to have some someone checking that kind of stuff. So putting training data into a permanent public space that has the ability to tag it, like Arweave, is a perfect solution to that. It makes it auditable, uh, it makes it repeatable, it makes it public. Anyone can use that same set of training data and the training data can not be proprietary and coming from and owned by just one source, but it's owned by the entire public and anyone can contribute to it. So I see a lot of benefit on starting to use something like Arweave, I would honestly prefer over any other decentralized storage mechanism just because they've nailed the, the, the permanence aspect of it for training data. And then you've got the training process itself that requires that you can do on any kind of hardware, but if you, want, if you don't want it to take absolutely forever, you need to have really high-end GPUs. And so there's a handful of new GPUs that have been introduced by NVIDIA that are so powerful, they literally cost like $20,000 a piece. The A100 and the H100 are, are two of them that I'm thinking of right now. And they're highly constrained supply. So one of the things that's actually happening is a lot of VCs, because they're trying to compete to actually get a founder to, to sign with them, is they're buying those GPUs so that they can have a kicker to offer. If you go with us, you get access to these A100s. But I see an opportunity. There's another um, protocol that, that we work with called Akash that saw the value of this a little while ago. And basically, Akash is generally a, a decentralized uh, AWS, where it's just general compute. You rent the thing. It's not designed for just one use case. You rent it and you can run whatever you want on top of it. So it's used generally to run a lot of different decentralized network nodes and stuff like that. They've, they've got pre-builds for different types of networks and stuff like that. And one of the things that they're working on introducing right now, it's already in uh, their test net. I think it comes out onto their main net very soon in the next couple of weeks or so, is the rentals of these really high-end GPUs, which really is a, a, a key mechanism because... The, the startups that need access to this don't necessarily need them for a long period of time. So if they need to buy 10 or 20 of them, that's an enormous cost outlay. And they're only going to need it for a short period of time. And then it's just sitting on the shelf, not earning back its, its cost. Whereas if they could buy it and then when they're done training it, rent it out to someone else. Or if the party that has a whole bunch of money that wants to invest in getting at the front of the line and buying them, they could rent them out available to the market and thus they can make their money back by just letting it go from one party to the next party to the next party to the next party. And now everyone has access to this. A whole lot of people are able to compete with each other and we can use this constrained supply in a useful way. There's another technology called ZKML, Zero Knowledge Machine Learning, that basically 
turns what is currently a black box of you start with training data, you apply, you, you create a, a trained model, and then you get inference out the other side. And being able to reverse engineer from the inference back through the trained model back to the training data is nearly impossible. ZKML gives you some ability to actually be able to do that. You can verify what training data and what training model generated some particular inference output. That's enormously powerful. And then the last piece is a lot of people are worried about, like, th there's various different AI dangers. There's the Terminator version. I honestly think that's absurd. I think that's just the stuff of sci-fi. And any AGI that is intelligent enough to want to control the world is also going to know that the, the most effective way for the world to benefit is freedom. That's just what history has taught us. As we've grown more and more free, we've also grown more and more... There, there's been more benefit to the overworld, to all mechanisms within it, to all the systems within it. So I just don't see the dystopian side being likely. There's a lot of things that you can do to prevent it, but the much more likely kind of dangers are a couple of weeks ago, there was the Pentagon explosion where a, a, a fake image uh, started going around and someone put it on Twitter and then some major account retweeted it. And so everyone's like, oh my God, this is a real thing. And it was just... It wasn't even a Pentagon, it was just a government-looking building, and there was really obvious artifacting, so it was clearly machine-generated. But in those few minutes that people were taking it seriously, the market lost a half a trillion dollars of value. It recovered pretty quickly, but it was pretty scary to the market, and the especially the implications of that, that, oh my God, we're going to get to a point here where this stuff is so good, because... I was a, a visual effects compositor in my kind of past career, so I know how to make an image look really good. We've been able to do that for decades, but it took a lot of time. And so it wasn't that big of a threat because it took so much of a, of a commitment to do anything like that. Now, with one prompt and a few seconds of rendering, you can make an entirely realistic looking image. Oh my God, how are we going to be able to trust anything we see on the internet anymore? This is terrifying. Most everyone in the Web3 industry, in the crypto industry knows what the solution is. Sign everything. There's a, a great blog post by Fred Wilson called Sign Everything, and it gets into the details of this uh, if, if your listeners want to go read the details. But basically just using public private key cryptography and the fact that I can control my private key and then sign a message that I put into the world, I can authenticate it as me. And everyone that follows me knows that message came from me. And so if some image of a Pentagon explosion comes out and it isn't signed, or the signature has no history, nothing else has been signed by it before, it's very easy to look at that and say, okay, that's almost certainly fake. We don't need to analyze the image itself because if it was coming from a trustworthy news source that wanted to show their track record of, of provenance and, and, and how they've never you know, lied about stuff in the past, it would be easy for them to do. There's a whole lot of uh, technology baked into Web3 that have been getting built over the years but they're hard to apply. So there's a lot of Web2 startup founders that have just decided, ah, the, the web works well enough as it is, but now they're really excited to integrate AI. So we tend to think because they have the uh, knowledge and know-how and, and dedication to get over those hurdles in order to enable them to have access to AI, they're also going to be integrating Web3. And once they do, they're going to discover, oh, it's more than just the fact that I can do my machine learning on it. It's also, look at all these other amazing things. I can do micropayments. I can, all this other amazing stuff. So we think the emergence of AI is going to lead to the adoption of Web3 without people really even realizing it. This can be invisible on the back end. That's a narrative that's been resonating with people really well just because everyone's ex either excited about or scared of AI right now. It helps them see why they don't necessarily need to be terrified of it. It's actually going to be treated like email spam for a while. Email spam was a very serious problem. You couldn't really tell if something was from your friend or, or not. 
and then some amount of cryptography got inserted into it in an, in a somewhat invisible way to where it's now mostly possible to filter every everything that isn't really intended for you out and it still happens and you can go look at your spam box uh, but it isn't a problem uh, in business and with communications using history and addressing technological fears in a way to show that it's evolving in a good way shows how web3 is helpful but being alarmist and having a blanket statement oh it works for everything that doesn't work. I was one of the people that are responsible for having made those claims over the past couple of years because I was so excited about it. And so I, I feel bad about that. Mea culpa, I'm sorry. Because it was a mistake, for sure. Because it gave people the... Elon Musk had that famous line like, where is Web3? I can't find it. It's really easy for people to assume right now that it's nothing but vaporware and promises because the technology works, but for the most part, the people using it are in the industry already. And that's to be expected. This is an industry that kind of... It is largely driven, the adoption cycle is largely driven by Bitcoin's halving cycle. Every four years, as we start approaching the next halving, the price starts ramping up. And because that's responsible for 50% of the overall crypto market cap, and it's the easiest on-ramp into all of the rest of the protocols and tokens in the in the space, as it goes up in value, someone made an enormous amount of profit just by holding their Bitcoin. And they're like, well, I'm going to diversify a little bit and buy 10 other coins. And so they go up in value. And so you have this cycle where as that's happening, the pie grows larger. The number of people that are interested in the space because they've been hearing about it for a cycle, but now it's down in the dumps. And why would I want to get into that? But now it's rocketing up. And so a lot of people know that a lot of their friends that got into this got into it on an upward ramp. And then they're upset about it because maybe it fell back below the upward ramp after that. And so it creates this kind of a weird cycle. And so we can expect that's just going to be the case for a little while, at least until there's a little bit more balance in, in value between all these things and other protocols having cycles have more of an impact on exactly what the adoption cycle is going to look like. But as a result, it means that during those uh, kind of crypto winter periods, the only people that are using this stuff aren't new users. So they're the people that have already bought into it over the previous kind of past cycle. And so... The UX issues are focused just on the people that kind of already know. So like anyone that's using some altcoin, it isn't necessarily having any better UX than Bitcoin does. Because people think if you had to use these kind of ugly looking public keys to, to for your wallet to get into Bitcoin and people already understood how to do that, then it's totally fine to do that in all of the other coins as well. I tend to think... We still need some major UX solutions to to happen before this is easy enough for my, my in-laws and everyone else to actually actively use this kind of stuff. At the same time, it's entirely possible that the kind of marriage of Web3 and AI is what's going to lead to that. Sam often talks about how we're going to get to a phase, and I think we're really close to it. There's a, a new thing that came out called Engineer GPT that almost does this. He describes a situation where rather than you having to use an interface that already exists, you tell your your personal AI agent to generate you uh, an interface wrapped around this particular set of data, and it should look like this, and it generates it for you on the fly. We can almost do that wow. right now. And doing that, especially if the AI is trained on all of the docs for each of these protocols and how the wallets work and stuff like that, it can easily obscure all the complexity that makes most people turn off and be like, I, I can't understand that. So it feels like to some degree, we're still at the IP address phase of the web, the development of the web before domains. And a lot of people thought what we need to do is solve for the naming issue. So we got things like ANS and stuff like that. And, and there's names on Arweave now and a lot of these other issues or solutions. But I don't think that's the totality of the UX solution because there's still way too much complexity around signing and where are your keys stored and the the the, the issue of are you either going to trust someone else, which 
can have its own benefits, but it does it's not FDIC insured, so it's not really an equivalent to a bank. Or are you going to only trust yourself? And since people have been trained for 20 years by the web to not care about their password management skills, because there's always that forgot your password button, that doesn't really work. So a lot of people that have burned themselves by losing a little bit of crypto by holding their own keys, they're like, this isn't going to work. So there's a handful of those UX solutions that really need to happen for that next kind of phase. So I totally agree that making the promises of, oh, I can do anything and everything, and then people come along and try it, and they're like, they can't even get through the door, that hadn't that hasn't really helped. So yes, I think you're summarizing it of, yes, using those historical analogs really resonates with people and over-promising does not. I was curious to hear about like your background before Web3 Working Group. I've got a really weird career. The very <laughs> first job I had actually is probably why this is also interesting to me. I, when I was a, a teenager, I was a dial-up uh, ISP phone support engineer. So literally most people that were on the web were still on, most people that were on the internet were still on AOL. I was in one of those local ISPs that was trying to get people directly onto the web itself. And it was bank of modems, dial up kind of thing. And we'd mail you a floppy disk to install the drivers because most computers didn't even have TCP IP drivers on them and stuff like that. And so I was the guy that would answer the call from grandma saying, I've got this modem and I've got it sitting here on my computer and I installed your software and nothing's happening. And we eventually figure out that they think it's a wireless modem and it's sitting on top of their display and nothing's plugged in kind of stuff. So that was a fun way to be introduced to the idea of this this global emergent technology that has so much potential, but it's so complicated. But despite that, grandma was really sure that she wanted to to, to push through this and, and make it happen anyway, because she could tell this was going to be important. And so that has resonated with me enormously through this phase, that's for sure. But in the interim, I did a handful of other things. I worked for Apple for a few years and learned like this is when Apple was shifting from the company that was just about ready to go out of business to the biggest company on the planet after introducing the iPod. And I saw how you do marketing right, how you talk to customers right, that kind of stuff, how you can turn a hardware-focused business into something that can beat all the software businesses, their own game kind of thing. It was incredibly impressive. Uh, and then I was in the Marine Corps, and I, uh, I was in the Marine Corps Infantry, and I invaded Iraq. That was something I certainly did not expect to ever do. I, I signed up for that just to go to college. Uh, and then a month after I graduated from the School of Infantry was 9-11, and that very much changed the tra trajectory of that next couple of years. Getting out of that, I got into the visual effects and compositing industry. I worked for Sony and Universal and a handful, and the Jim Henson company was actually the one that I had the most fun at. And that was a blast because I've always been interested in movies and especially the visual effects side of things. And I was very fortunate that I got out of it at just the right time, just as the industry was being very much, well, it was being destroyed by just global competition. Like that, there was uh, firms around the world that could do it for cheaper. Uh, so the, the the revenue coming into these uh, firms was 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 reducing. And so I, I got out of it, I think it was the same year that Life of Pi won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, while outside a bunch of visual effects artists from a company called Rhythm and Hughes were picketing because they hadn't been paid for a few months and their company just shut down. So the disparity between those two things was interesting to see. Um, and coming out of that, got into kind of the entrepreneurial side, did some some overseas manufacturing and some some product design stuff. And that was very hard. Designing a product is a lot of fun. Marketing a product is a lot of fun. But having to go interface with factories around the world to, to manufacture them for you and then sell them into a U.S. market with incredibly tight margins is just an absolute headache. So in 2012, 2013, I became aware of Bitcoin 
And because of my experience in the visual effects industry, what I saw it as is an opportunity to solve for distribution issues. That this the blockchain technology is a great place to store a ledger of credits and debits. That's awesome, but it's also a great place to store the bits and bytes necessary to distribute your independent film and to have some transparency around that and so that all of the artists involved in it know exactly how much revenue is coming in and stuff like that. Pivoting from the hard to have any kind of control over hardware manufacturing side of things into software was just a blessing and was absolutely wonderful. But we were definitely too early. We described on an Ethereum forum almost 10 years ago now, it was uh, February of 2014, two projects, one called MovieCoin, which is what I'm describing, where it's just take all of these technologies and coin. Obviously, Arweave didn't exist yet. Not even IPFS existed yet. So we were talking about distrib distribution over a network like BitTorrent, micropayments over using MovieCoin, and a handful of other kind of things on that kind of uh, side of things. And then another one that was called, initially it was called Archive Chain. Then a friend of mine said, hey, what about Alexandria? Wouldn't that be cool? And that just absolutely resonated with people because the idea of the Library of Alexandria is something that a lot of people are familiar with there, where it was this attempt to store the world's knowledge for the benefit of future generations. But because it was centralized, it was destroyed. A lot of people think it was destroyed by a fire. It was destroyed just by a handful of different things because it was in one place. And so over time, it could, more and more of it could be destroyed. And so now that we had this opportunity for a decent, we actually called the project the Decentralized Library of Alexandria, this could solve for a lot of different things. It could, you could, if you can learn from the mistakes of the past, you can prevent them. And the only way we can do that is if we have an accurate record of the past, because like people like to say, history is written by the victors. That's only because those victors are able to scrub and erase the parts of history that they don't particularly like. History is being constantly written by everyone. And so as long as you don't let the most powerful forces erase the parts of history that they don't like and doesn't support their story, you get an accurate representation of history. And from that accurate representation of history, hopefully you can avoid things like I was to some degree motivated by the fact that I invaded Iraq and then found out years later it was based on maybe lies or maybe just people being stupid, not like believing things that they shouldn't have. Cognitive dissonance is a crazy phenomenon and can cause all kinds of awful behavior from well-intentioned people. Uh, and so say what you will about the intentions of the people that were pushing us to do it, it led to bad results. A lot of people were killed, a lot of people were traumatized, an entire nation was destroyed, multiple nations at this point, as a result of the whole thing were destroyed. And so motivated both by, boy, it really seems like the media industry could be having a much more positive impact on all the artists involved and the world itself. And the fact that the, the medium that carries popular content also carries the news. That's always been the case. If we upgrade this thing for the sake of, of popular content and are able to more effectively deliver movies, then we can also deliver the news and history. So I just saw it as a technology that could really help the world in an, enorm in an enormous number of ways. Uh, but like I said, we were, we were way too early at the time. People treated us like pariahs for talking about that you could do anything with blockchain other than Bitcoin. That's just absurd and silly. But so we eventually decided, okay, let's just focus on just development and figuring out these ideas further and stuff like that and stop worrying about the, the front ends of it. And so we got to spend a lot of time investigating what the best way to organize information is so that it can work for scientific purposes and government purposes. And, and so we did pilot programs with um, Caltech to store scientific data. And like I said, the, the state of Wyoming to store land records. And there was uh, some a bunch of news records that were being stored. And then obviously videos and movies and stuff like that. And now I see an enormous opportunity for those same kind of concepts to 
apply into spaces like Arweave, for example. Like I was just looking last night between, what is it called? Ancient Internet and the Alex Project. They're doing two sides of what our project originally did back in the day, where they're archiving aspects of the public space, the public square, Twitter. Like they'll either capture a, a particular a user and all of the tweets that they've shared, or they'll capture a subject and everything that's ever been said about those things. And we actually came up with a really innovative way to visualize that stuff 10 years ago, and we've never seen it actually be used by anyone. So it's something I'm excited to reach out to those projects and maybe incept those ideas. It's basically like this word cloud that boils down. Because when you try to capture an entire subject, like the the Ukraine-Russia um, war that's going on, Every second, there's a thousand tweets about it. You can't possibly wade through that and expect to know anything about it. And the reason it was important to me at the time is because Twitter was how I discovered blockchain. There was such an amazing conversation about blockchain happening all the time. I was teaching people, sharing ideas, and I was learning from people, and it was just absolutely amazing. But there's no way with Twitter, like I can tech right now, what the general sense of things are, what people think about things right now. But I can't do that same thing from six months ago. And I can't see how that's evolved over time on kind of a macro level. And so one of the ways that we had envisioned how you could see that is you turn all that overwhelming, enormous amounts of data, the fire hose of Twitter into a word cloud based on a timeline. And so you can see what the most emergent ideas are because they're the biggest words. And then if you want to push in on them, you can see the individual tweets that that added up to become that particular word. So we were running it for a while, actually. It's weird how history cycles. When um, uh, Russia invaded Crimea seven years ago or so, and so we were capturing the words Russia and Crimea and Putin. And I remember one morning I'm looking at the word cloud and suddenly tanks becomes the biggest word. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I dig into it and it looks like they've literally just sent tanks over the border into Crimea. And it was, and so you can just play this timeline and look how people are describing history at different periods in time. And because it's on a permanent blockchain, it can't be erased after the fact. So this stuff just absolutely excites me. And I I honestly can't uh, imagine how much kind of better society can be if we have access to this for the first time, because never in history have we had the ability to have permanent storage of information to be able to learn from. And so we have these awful cycles where once every human lifetime, we forget about everything and we make the same mistakes all over again. Maybe we can change that now. How is the SEC making your job hard right now? They aren't making our job hard um, because they're actually making it easier for us to educate people about the dangers of this stuff. They're making all the entrepreneurs' jobs hard and they're making all the end users that want to adopt this stuff, making it hard for them to get into it because it's putting so much, there's so much pent up energy at the sidelines waiting to see how this stuff is going to roll out. It was almost 10 years ago that we got the Jobs Act. And one of the side effects of the the Jobs Act was supposed to solve for that we had these crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter that you'd throw in your hundred bucks or whatever. And if the product eventually got built, you'd get that product. And that was perfect for a lot of different products. But some Products like the Oculus Rift were Kickstarter projects. And so you'd throw in your three or 400 bucks and you'd eventually get your Oculus Rift and that's great. But after I think two years, it got sold to Facebook for like $4 billion. And none of the people, and they I don't think they had to raise too much money in the interim to do so because they proved their product using Kickstarter. I might be wrong about that, they might raise a lot, but the point is really their seed stage did come from the public that was paying for these things. And so a lot of people thought, why can't we do crowdfunding 
for equity on these kind of projects. And so the Jobs Act was intended to allow exactly that. And it had carve outs from securities laws to explicitly allow that. And the extra interesting thing is it even envisioned because cryptocurrency did exist at the time and the the altcoin explosion had begun and a lot of people were thinking this is a great way to replace stocks. Like they were leaning into the equity side or to the security side and saying this could do what stocks do and what securities do but better with more trustworthiness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's embrace this new technology. But it did it so poorly. It implemented it so poorly. I think there's maybe a dozen or two dozen projects that actually have ever used it in the 10 years in in the interim. And in the meanwhile, with only that and then nothing else new laws wise coming along in that period, the SEC has instead just assumed that until we start losing cases in court, we're on the right track. We're going to just keep on enforcing and enforcing. And the danger with that is they have an unlimited budget, essentially. They don't technically, but the backer behind them has an unlimited budget. It can print money. And that's really dangerous, especially if your goal is to try to grow your economy and grow the amount of innovation that's happening. And so clearly, they don't share that goal. So say what you will about whether there's ulterior motives there. I don't necessarily know that there are. I think, again, like I said earlier, cognitive dissonance goes to explain a whole lot of things that we might assume to be ulterior motive or uh, bad intent as actually just you believe what makes most sense within your worldview at that particular point in time. And so it's. I think it's really harmed the industry for this regulation through enforcement approach. I think it's held a lot of projects back. I think it's made a lot of projects that otherwise should be very easy to use for Americans. Like, I think all of the projects that were that are represented by our board members, I can't get on most exchanges. And that's really hard. They're all available on, I think, crypto.com, which is nice that I can at least get them. I don't particularly like the interface of crypto.com. I'd like I think it would be improved if there was competition. I think if there was a handful of different markets that were end user facing, that had to compete for market share and were able to trade more tokens, they would increase their their UI and the UX experience. I think it'd be nice if Coinbase could list most of these things. And I think the only reason they can't is because they each need to have their own checklists that they go through to decide, do we think that the SEC is going to come after us for this? And clearly, they were wrong about some of their decisions. Not that they were, in fact, illegal or unregistered securities, but the SEC thinks they were. And this is because the SEC hasn't actually been clear about anything, and they're acting as if their enforcement actions are clarity and do create clarity. An enforcement action isn't law, especially while it's still being hashed out in the courts. And because of how powerful they are, a lot of these things end with a settlement because the party that's defending themselves runs out of resources and the U.S. government doesn't. We just keep on increasing that debt limit and borrowing and making up more money. And so you've got this really bad uh, asymmetry of power involved. And I think the biggest harm has been, it makes me wonder how many, because it's biased toward founders, either there's obviously a lot of the founders in the industry, they just said, this is such a good idea and it's so important for the world that I'm going to risk the danger that I really hope that we're doing this right and we're and most of them get legal counsel to try to tell them what is the right way to do this to avoid trouble and everything. So they don't want their end users to be in trouble. They don't want their market cap to be destroyed. Like a lot of people were using LBRY and Odyssey and published a lot of stuff. They had, I think, millions of users and they've been effectively destroyed by the SEC. And that's that's not good for innovation. So like I was saying, biases for certain types of founders, you've got certain ones that are just so dedicated to the cause that they'll go for it, even if it's not entirely sure whether it's going to be okay or not. But the ones that have a little bit more of, they want a little bit more safety, they're 
hanging out at the sidelines or looking at other countries that are saying, hey, it's perfectly legal here, come here. But then a lot of the market is literally people that are saying, well, if this is going to be treated as illegal anyway, then I'm just going to do it as a fly-by-night operation, get as much money as I can, rug pull, and then bounce. If I'm already breaking the law, why not just go full criminal and steal? And so it seems like a handful of these scams were the side effect of this atmosphere. They, there is mm -hmm. no clear way to do it legally, so screw it. Let's do it illegally and get as much as we can. And that's obviously not beneficial, and I certainly don't think it's the SEC's intent, but it certainly seems to be the side effect of it. So I wouldn't say it's mainly a headache just for me as a user. It's not something we, we don't have to interface with them you know, directly. Maybe we will be able to eventually give them some insight. I think they obviously are able to learn a whole bunch, but they aren't where the change needs to happen. The law, They don't implement policy or they shouldn't be implementing policy. The lawmakers are where the changes need to happen. And so because they're running wild, it's actually made our job easier to help lawmakers understand you need to upgrade this situation, obviously. Look at the damage that's being done. They're trying to figure it out too, but they don't know more than we do. And so it's it makes your work mm -hmm. maybe more relevant than ever, right? It does. More exactly. urgent. Exactly. <laughs> Which is cool. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's cool. It gives us the opportunity to have meetings that we probably wouldn't get to have otherwise. But I just, I, I look forward to the beneficial results of it more than anything. Where can our listeners keep in touch with Web3 Working Group and, and hear about all the work you're doing? Three ways. They can uh, find us on Twitter. Our, we're on all socials at Web3WG. And so we share various news points and stuff like that and little short clips and, and stuff like that. But a lot of the kind of longer form education work that we're doing, like one of the missions we took on was to plug a gap that we saw where there's a lot of what is Bitcoin videos out there, but they tend to either be way too jargon heavy and industry specific. So once you're already in, you can really learn about these things using all of the acronyms that are already in there. And then they're way so they're just so dramatically oversimplified that they don't teach you anything. We wanted to fill the space where it can actually teach you how these things work using historical analogs and stuff like that. But it's not so heavily reliant on jargon and acronyms that it loses your average person that's just trying to start from the beginning. So we've got a whole Web3 basics and then we start getting into some of these infrastructure projects. That's on our YouTube channel at Web3WG. And then at our website itself, we've got a sign up for a newsletter where we are going to be doing some campaigns of various different sorts where we would very much like to have the support of the public. So signing up for that so that we can let you know and so that you can be a part of that movement, that would be fantastic. You can get there at web3wg.org. Thank you for all your wisdom and great feedback on this interesting world. Thank you, Andrew. It was really fun to be on with you. Inspirational guy, great perspective. Thank you so much, Devin. Be sure to check out the Web3 Working Group and be sure to check out Turbo. Know before you stow. I'm Andrew and this has been the Artcast. 